0: Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode, we conclude our series on the Century of the Self. We review and discuss part four of the four-part documentary series, Eight people sipping wine in Kettering.
1: We come now to the end of this series.
2: Here we are. Here we are. Eight people sipping wine in Kettering.
1: There's two ways of looking at it. Either... This is the coda to a a broader sweep of historical narrative that takes place in episodes one through three, or you could say that episodes one and three were a really long preface to this episode.
2: Hmm. I would go with that one
1: because the entire purpose of this is what Elaine might do. Say, might call the uh, the meaning of Tony Blair. <laughs> He's pondering how it is history produced this particular politician who he detests and why it is politics at this point in the late 20th, early 21st century seems to be completely hollowed out of meaning or content and how it is we ended up with this weird collective action problem preventing us from having a society that isn't doing anything but running on momentum from everything that had been built up previously and why why it is that the sense of solidarity that seemed to exist you know maybe in the mid 20th century has been seemed to have completely dissipated and been replaced by this i don't know hobbesian war of all against all (laughs) um or the very or even that maybe just individuals conceiving of themselves as just that um These
2: Freudian individuals.
1: Yeah, Freudian hedonistic individuals just trying to maximize their own pleasure and to uh, express themselves uh, in a way that makes them distinct from the serialized mass that they are a part of. (laughs) Yeah,
2: and it's an irrational form of pleasure that undermines the possibility of democracy and undermines the possibility of any sort of, like, Collective responsibility, right?
1: Yeah, and I think what's so maddening for Curtis and why he despises Tony Blair so much is that Tony Blair and the other guy, what was his name, Michael? Uh, shit, Michael something. Anyway, the, the, his main, his main uh, idea, man, the guy who's conducting all of these market, working with all this market research and conducting these focus groups, they seem to believe their own bullshit. In other words, they seem to believe that this uh, instantaneous feedback loop or this idea of politicians using focus groups and the tools of advertisement in order to reflect the masses' desires back to them, that this is some new form of democracy that is superior to the more, you could say, uh, paternalistic, patrician modes of elite rule in British society that had existed up to that point.
2: Are you talking Peter Mandelson?
1: Peter Mandelson. Thank you.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, to talk about this is to talk about a story that we've often visited on Swampside Chats very much in a skeptical way, that as Marxists, we have a better explanation for why this shift occurred than the lefts that we all grew up around, which were almost devoid of structural analysis, right? If you're like a hardcore crisis theory Marxist, you're thinking about the falling rate of profit, potentially overproduction. Uh, Overproduction does get a name check in some earlier episodes. You know, if you're thinking about politically, why there is a class compromise at one time and why there isn't, thinking in terms of industrialization and deindustrialization, any combination of these things will give you, I think, a better picture than solely following intentional action on the part of policymakers and politicians. However, this narrative is structured with the exception of a discussion of the American deficit, right? The, the budget deficit and the, and the debt. With the exception of that, it's essentially a picture devoid of structural features. It's a story about individuals making decisions that destroy democracy, destroy the welfare state, destroy the promise of the post-war compacts in Britain and the United States. In short, quote unquote, neoliberalism, right? We've all encountered stories about neoliberalism. And how it was essentially some sort of political conspiracy on the part of, you know, corrupt, parasitic elites that liquidated a class compromise that was working perfectly or something along these lines. You know, there's varying levels of honesty when delivering this sermon.
1: I mean, I would, the way I see it, this is basically a horror movie and Capital is the Monster who lurks at the edge of it, edges of it and jumps in at certain points, but the very existence of it colors everything that's happening, even if it's never addressed directly. Um, and yeah, that <laughs> it, that is part of the limitations of Curtis's mode of storytelling here and the way that he approaches this.
2: There's usually a reveal in the monster movie, Jake. Like, you get one it- flash of the deficit, you know what I mean?
1: Mm-hmm. Maybe it's more like – well, maybe it's more like uh, – well, a monster more in like the Twin Peaks sense where there's this vague malaise <laughs> that exists in, like in the air that's just creepy and lends like an unsettling vibe. But it's there. You see what I'm saying though? The problem – I mean part of the problem is if you were to really open up the economic aspect, that's a whole other can of worms that probably exists beyond the scope of what he's doing here. And as much as I'd love to see that opened up, that's like a eight or ten-part series at least, <laughs> you know, not, a, not like a four-part series. If
2: you're, you know, if, yeah, but like, I feel like you're giving him a very charitable read, right? That, oh, yeah. Oh, no, 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 who could, who could explain this and, you know, an episode like, I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm sure there's some like, you know, half, I, I don't know, some like irony poisoned bread tuber who could do it. Like, I'm pretty sure they're doing it right now. You know, like, the point is that we're dealing with a whole episode about individual actions, in uh, m- individual motivations. And I'm not denying that these individual actions existed. Like, there's a whole story about why Bill Clinton turned from his early campaign promises to, you know, being the guy to finally gut welfare. Did Bill Clinton get elected thinking, I'm going to gut welfare? Probably not so i'm I'm not even saying that this is an untrue story in its in its details, but like it's uh the true is a moment of the false we're by not looking at how big these other variables are, we're telling something of a half truth, and I really believe that the rest of this story, maybe the more interesting episodes of Century of the Self, the ones that have more reference to structural factors, even though they have this conspiratorial agent kind of mode of storytelling are a prelude to this, that, you know, this is why we have an atomized society. This, you know, it's, it's that, you know, Freudian market research thinking took over, you know, democracy and it, and it disguised itself as a better form of democracy, even though the people that developed it, were trying to undermine the very concept, didn't re- or, or didn't really believe in it, you know. Um, Edward Bernays has an anti-democratic phase and then a rebrand phase, where he's talking about the democracy, you know, like, right. and that this is a victory of this false version of democracy from a Futurama.
1: <laughs> right. This, I mean, yeah, this comes this comes up against the limits of all of Adam Curtis's stuff and I guess I'm maybe able to apply a more charitable reading to it than I might have a few years ago. It's precisely that, I guess, I take a lot of that stuff for granted in a way. It's like, okay, I kind of accept it for what it is, Um, and as what it is, it's uh, tremendously interesting, and it does get at something that's very real, albeit perhaps not in the most uh, penetrating way that it possibly could. And yeah, there is kind of a conspiratorial bent to it but that's also kind of part of the fun of it <laughs> oh uh,
2: yeah i don't think adam curtis would have a career if he didn't play this up i think that's part of the charm is that we're telling a story about how this all could have been averted if you know there were just kind of different people there which i'm not saying that you know those individuals making those decisions didn't matter that's
1: not it at all but well that's a very incomplete picture Right, well, the, but there is, I mean, there's there's kind of an agency to it, but there's everyone, all of these characters are always responding to something, and then they produce something that is the opposite, often, of what they intended. At least they are if they're leftists, which, again, is why he despises Blair so much, because somebody like Edward Bernays, he can have a certain, uh, the kind of respect you can have for somebody who you understand is your enemy, and... Mm-hmm. Edward Bernays is able to accomplish exactly what, what he wants to accomplish, partly because what he wants to accomplish is very narrow, which is to make himself a lot of money and gain a lot of notoriety, <laughs> uh, which, which he did. An early clip of this ends up with him on Letterman na- pushing 100, uh, charming the pants off Dave in the audience. And with literally his... on 19, in the year 1984. Yes. <laughs> but somebody like Tony Blair, Peter Mendelssohn. They believe they accept this stuff. They they accept the propaganda. They buy into the bullshit and believe that this can somehow be turned into something that has social, social, if not socialist content, as opposed to being merely a way for the ruling class to continue to strip mine the remnants of society in order to, you know, get their get their bag, get on their own lifeboats while the Titanic sinks. Right. Right. Um. There's a great clip of that, too, where uh, Tony Blair appears to be wearing a pirate shirt, is uh, (laughs) bouncing a ball back and forth between him and a constituency between their heads. It's a nice little clip symbolizing uh, the kind of feedback loop that he seemed to be going for or attempting, and also how ridiculous and despicable he looks doing
2: it. Yeah, I think think that's maybe the main thing uh, articulated there. Um, so this starts off with the exploration of 1980s Britain, you know, essentially a new form of elitism. Um, like you said, the, there was this patrician attitude that the, was sort of encapsulated by the BBC,
1: you know? It's, it's, well, it's, and it's, it's a remnant of England, one having an actual established class system, uh, That was fairly rigid and, yeah, did have this kind of cultivated patrician elitism, which the United States— Yeah,
2: they literally had an aristocracy. They literally had an aristocracy. That never really happened in the U.S. There are forms of it. You know, de Tocqueville's, you know, felt good about American democracy because lawyers could be the new aristocracy. We could talk about slaveholders and, and the way that they functioned. Whatever. Like, but there wasn't a literal aristocracy
1: right, America was always much more entrepreneurial, which is why this stuff originates from there, and so this is where he brings home to the British audience this is this is this is what this is why this stuff came here, and this is also why this stuff came here late. You know it wasn't really adopted by the elites until they absolutely felt like they had to um and this is also the point where the sweeping narrative about the Freuds kind of comes to an end, like I said, you have Bernay's. Later in life on Letterman, uh, you have I think uh, the grandson I think of Freud who also works in advertising in England applying some of these ideas mm. in the 1980s. But other than that, the Freud's are basically out of the picture. Um, this is this is purely a narrative of attempting to understand the, the emergence of Blairism out of Thatcherism using mm-hmm. using the insights that were accrued in the previous episode about this. Type of subjectivity that was cultivated in people, um, and I mean, I think, I think in terms of agency, it is often yeah presented as an as a conspiracy of these different ideologues in battle with each other through history, or figures as well. And some, if you watch like hypernormalization, you see there seems to be this uh, war between uh, Assad. And Henry Kissinger—that's that—is presented, even though obviously the geostrategic stuff taking place is more complicated. But like I said, at the same time, I don't think you can watch this and say that Bernays like invented all of this out of whole cloth. He was responding to something. He was responding to some kind of market imperative. And while it doesn't like explicate the functions of the market or why the market drives things to this end. I think it like the market is there as kind of a force. And obviously, because he's producing this for the BBC, he probably isn't <laughs> going to openly go against. I don't think that, especially in the late 90s or early 2000s, that an openly Marxist essay film, even if that's what he wanted to do, uh, would work.
2: We should take his look at the BBC as being a patrician institution, as, you know something virtuous question mark. I kind of don't really think that that's where he's coming from. I think he's a bit more, you know, quote unquote leftist than he's leading on. It's just that whatever quote unquote leftism is in someone like Adam Curtis is very much tied to the post-war compromise. But what he likes about the patrician attitude of the BBC is that you can see social class as a stable partisan marker. That's comforting. Uh, there is a discussion of the Mid-70s economic recession So that is a structural force That comes into play But that's mainly to introduce Advertising launching This American style focus group With housewives
1: I was gonna say I do love that clip Of um, the two BBC ladies like classifying Just random people on the street uh, <laughs> Just because they sound They sound like the chickens From Chicken Run uh, <laughs>
2: <gasps> could could you elaborate a little bit?
1: Have you seen Chicken Run? You ever seen Chicken Run?
2: I've I've never seen Chicken Run. You you'd think, mm. you, you think I would be? You think you think I you think I'd seen Chicken Run by now?
1: I mean, I'm not going to do a, an impression of the chicken from chickens from Chicken Run, but you could just like, drop, You could just do a drop, man. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. I just wanted to put that in. They sound like the chickens from Chicken Run. <laughs> um. Anyway, please continue. What, what, what about them? Sounds like the chickens from Chicken Run. Just the way they talk and like. <laughs> That's literally, uh, that's the extent of the observation.
2: Okay, got it, got it. You know, maybe that they're, like, cooped up, don't know much about the world, and are sort of generalizing about uh, what, you know, trying to generalize about what, you know, what they, you know, what they perceive based on, like, being in a chicken coop or something.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, okay, so, yeah, Chicken Run itself um, does play on a kind of British ethnic caricature of, you know, middle-class British women. Uh, housewives in particular, um, and what they're like when they're talking with each other socially. Um, so, in some ways, like Chicken Run, is a you know a little parody of this kind of person. Um, so it was delightful for me to see where it comes from because I don't live in England. So uh, you know,
2: yeah, yeah, fair enough. Speaking of housewives or someone that gestures at housewives, we enter the Iron Lady. And 1975, we have Margaret Thatcher dusting performatively at some sort of Tory convention, sort of conservative conference. And she articulates uh, a sort of unequal egalitarian individualism. The next thing you know, this new individualism drives a consumer boom, according to Curtis. Now, I think it's interesting that Curtis here... Really harps on the idea that psychological needs replaces class social class replaces social class as a category um and he sees this as something more or less conspiratorial. He's not really mentioning deindustrialization. I don't know how long it takes for deindustrialization to hit Britain, maybe you know in the mid seventies it's not yet operating, but I think there's probably good reasons that post material needs so-called become important as you know the locus of the economy shifts and you can tell less about somebody from their social class than you can you know by other characteristics at this point in time
1: yeah well he yeah for sure he underestimates the material basis for the consumer economy um, and yeah, he doesn't go into financialization. No. Um, he definitely he pretty much stays away from the weakened status of the trade unions. All that. He, he,
2: he includes that as part of, you know, the political effects of this. It's not like when talking about trade unions, if you're not talking about what kind of places the trade unions had a foothold in society. And, you know, you're doing something very superficial. And so like this idea that, psychological needs replaces social class as a category, you know, in a way, yeah, in it a, is a sort of like conservative, we have to preserve the post 45 compromise way. And he also makes the analogy to the new deal. You know, this is this is a big coup. But I mean, it's also the case that if you're doing predictive empirical social science, the psychological markers do predict voting behavior better than any of the identitarian or class characteristics that leftists normally harp on. Like, it's just true. It, these are repeatable studies, like a lot of things in psychology are not. <laughs> and no matter how good the psychological metrics are, that's significant. That dimension of things is just pretty much not there. This is thought of as, a, as an assault of the PR overlord's Through journalism, you know, that journalism caused this or, you know, like Matthew Freud, a son of an MP, you know, does contracts for product placement in tabloids. Rupert Murdoch is wheeled out. Um, Rupert Rupert Murdoch is wheeled out to talk about the changes in mass communication. Um, Now, Rupert Murdoch was... I mean, we're all familiar with Rupert Murdoch. He bought Fox News. Um, But he was known in England because of his paper called The Sun. I don't know if you've heard of The Sun, but basically The Sun makes the New York Post look like the Financial Times. Um, And it is like... (laughs) There's a reference to page three here. For those not familiar with British tabloids, the page three girl is a topless girl on Britain's major tabloid, The Sun. So in this, like, right-wing tabloid newspaper, on page three, which, if if you're counting the cover, covers page one, inside covers page two, page three, titties, right? (laughs) Rupert Murdoch compares the page three girl to the BBC running Star Trek before, before educational programming. Which I took yeah, exception to.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think, like, what episode of Star Trek could you describe as sexy? Is the one where like Crusher fucks a ghost? Like, is that what he's yeah. thought? is that is I, that the episode I, that was on first?
2: I, I guess maybe he's thinking of uh, the whole of Star Trek Voyager and Enterprise. Uh, like those shows are a bit more horny on main than most of the episodes of Star Trek. I'm assuming the
1: BBC were showing, but I mean, I de- I, it, it was pre Seven of Nine for sure. I mean.
2: Yeah, yeah. This is pre-UPNification where they restored the Roddenberry
1: Boner. Um so yeah. Well, you know, I mean, and, see the lead into Star Trek then was like Shasta McNasty. So <laughs> there was actually like some level of uh
2: It's a good, you know, it's a good point. I I think we forget uh we forget what UPN was, you know, but uh, <laughs> The po- the point is is that like This new form of public relations brain through journalism attacks class politics and liquidates it into individual psychological needs without any reference to what was happening to the factory system that Marx wrote about, right? And that this ultimately is more responsible for... You know, the British state turning against labor unions and public reinvestment and the post-war class compromise in general is titties in the sun.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, he – it's a superstructural analysis. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, yeah. He doesn't doesn't go into the material base as much as he probably – I mean – when it, they they get in, in part two a little bit into like the suburbanization process and mm-hmm. they, do, they do talk about the way this, because there is a certain amount of social engineering at work here with this stuff, right? It's not, I mean, yeah, a lot of it is, it's basically just going with the current of capital. Um, but there is a certain amount to which, and I think that the broad course of this series does get at was the way that this yeah this individualistic uh, consumer-based subjectivity was something that was very aggressively uh engineered and cultivated at the same time like it they 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 wanted things to be this way and they pushed to tip things in that direction now it worked because there were obviously yeah other base factors that were uh sort of re peasantizing uh, the mindset of you know the individual uh, in following the labor piece of post World War II Anglo world, but um, there is also there is like a superstructural fin- aspect to this as well that I think this series is good at getting at, even if it obviously is its analysis is hampered by yeah not going deeper into into financialization, globalization, and deindustrialization, which is you know and it's funny too because the people who were most concerned about that kind of stuff really did gravitate to this guy's work um i'm yeah i remember this guy was enormously popular with anti-globalization and anti-war and even occupy types uh in that period probably because you know it's like a good series to his stuff was you know it's really good to like smoke weed and like watch and be like yeah man it makes you think (laughs) i picked a hell of a time to quit smoking
2: shit just CBD gummies for me here on out. Maybe that's why I didn't I didn't take to this that well.
1: So, okay, so there's a part there's a part of this where he does explicitly allude to, like, the post-war compromise. Maybe he pulls this clip of people of a guy literally, after the war, explaining to the camera how uh, the collective sensibility and solidarity that was formed by the common experience of Ruin being bombed to shit in World War II would be something that they could use to... Foster cooperation and build a better world, which he contrasts weirdly to a speech at the Democratic National Convention by Mario Cuomo where he's <laughs> talking about the novel and growing homeless po- problem in the United States as a result of Reagan and right. how how nobody really seemed to give a shit and how that message was kind of a bummer. It was kind of a bummer and so you know nobody really wanted to hear it All right this is the
2: 1984 Democratic National Convention. Um, This, you know, Cuomo would be the governor of New York, Democratic governor of New York from 82 to 95. Quote, the worst thing Ronald Reagan did was to make the denial of compassion respectable. And this is in a section dedicated to what the perspective of the left is. And basically starts out saying, well, you know, FDR encouraged trade unions and consumer groups and welfare. Where's the fucking Communist Party in this? Where's the IWW? Like, where is that shit? FDR foreclosed the revolutionary possibilities of what a real trade union society could have been. You know, like, that's his role in history. There's a lot of things that we've lost since, you know, we've gotten social media and that sort of thing. Like, we've lost a lot of innocence We've lost a lot of sanity. But one fundamental break that I'm sort of grateful for is that there is more of a sense among people who care to investigate <laughs> um, that, you know, the New Deal and British socialism were the end of the left, not the beginning. Earlier. He says that, you know, Reagan and Thatcher put out a vision of individual satisfaction as reason uh, is just a cork floating on a swamp of unconscious desire. Is that wrong? Like, if the class compromise left and their vision of democracy was based on a vision where reason, you know, overcomes the whole swamp of unconscious desire. What the fuck were they doing?
1: Well, it's weird, too, because there's a lot of historical reasons that this kind of subjectivity could be more easily cultivated in the United States that they don't really get into.
2: Right. Yeah. What's important is the parallels and the and the actual, like, policymaker revolving door between the Blair and Clinton administrations.
1: It's funny, too, seeing Robert Reich in this Oh, yeah. uh, one, just because because of what we know about him, but also because it, it feels like Adam Curtis like showed him like the first three parts of this and then asked him to summarize it.
2: It's kind of his thing, though. Like, and again, Robert Reich was in the room while these decisions were being made. Robert, is it Reich? Reich? I'm sensitive about that.
1: <laughs> I think it's Robert I, Reich, right? Yeah, let's make let's make him own it.
2: Yeah. All yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Robert Reich was in the room as these decisions are being made, so I'm sympathetic to someone in the room while, you know, saxophone Bill is like, yeah, I'm gonna cut, well, you know, actually, yeah. I'm gonna cut welfare because, and, and put in V-chips because, uh, you know, I'm t- taking a new strategist. You, you know what I mean? Like, if, I don't know, I could do a better Clinton impersonation, but those mm-hmm. days are behind me.
1: Um, I, I do love how, you know they they pulled a shot of him like publicly signing the uh got the welfare bill or whatever mm-hmm. of course they find find a nice black lady to stand right behind him when he's doing it right oh <laughs> man um, that that's that's the thing about
2: that is p r brain it's
1: p r brain but uh that's the thing about like people see through i feel like people see through that shit more now, you know like back mm-hmm. then you could do that because it was all it was all filtered through television. And that would be like a two-second clip people saw and they wouldn't think about it anymore. But it's like now you look at – you have a second to look at that a little bit longer if you want and you're like – you can see very clearly what, what you're doing there. When there's when, – when you can look at the receipts a little more closely.
2: Yeah, there's a, a greater knowledge of how media manipulation operates and what tokenism means. That doesn't mean that we don't respond to it, but it does mean that more people are critical of it.
1: Like – I mean – yeah, it's weird because a lot of what they talk about here is this micromanaged, very artificial, crafting this media image custom-tailored to the desires of suburban swing voters mm-hmm. in order to, like, win them over.
2: Which is not wrong. That's that's not an incorrect view of how, like, contemporary voting—contemporary uh, electoral strategy works in—at at least the Democratic Party. You know, at least God the Democrats. God knows what's happening in the GOP.
1: Well, what's interesting with Trump, though, is that it's very hard to imagine Trump pouring over this kind of data. Trump seems to do it almost sui genius in that he, through years of extensive media consumption and watching a shit ton of Fox News and listening to morning talk radio.
2: And being a New York public figure and some form of cluster B personality disorder.
1: He's made himself into this ideal subjectivity this ideal average of Mm -hmm. aging like boomer fox news grandpa so he's able to do it and be able to appeal to their deepest psychic longings without doing any of the focus group shit right without doing it just come just completely 100% winging it the entire way
2: he's the new capitalist man he's like yeah what Twitter produces before Twitter. Like, if you can internalize all of the, you know, I just want people to like me, how do I shitpost the right way, and do it over decades, you can make yourself a predictive Markov chain of things that will appeal to an audience, particularly aging swing voters. (laughs)
1: Yeah, so it's I, that's just something that I kept occurring to me watching this because there's this terror of, you know, it's going to be, you know, a focus group sociologist stamping on a human face forever from here until the end of time. <laughs> yeah,
2: and, and precisely the type of person that disrupts this is also most conditioned by it, which is yes. a very strange phenomenon. But, you know, it's like a... It's shifting from a sort of a Freudian repressive view to a Foucauldian sort of articulation view of domination. You know, like, instead of not being able to say the things that you really want to say, you construct yourself in just such a way so that what you really want to say is just what want, what people want to hear.
1: Okay, so where are we in this
0: episode?
2: So um, we're at the part where... Um, Philip Gould is the strategic Labor Party advisor, and these patrician attitudes motivate a turn towards focus groups. And this is after the uh, Democrats and Labor lose many elections during the 80s because they're appealing to a post-war compromise, which brackets the bottom has fallen out for, the base has fallen out for, end bracket.
1: Yeah, well, there's this thing that keeps happening, too, that, I, that also kind of connects to what we were just talking about that kind of freaks me out they keep having these situations where the polls show that the liberal party is going to win. And then they either <laughs> vote for Thatcher or Reagan. Like, that keeps happening over and over and yeah. over again.
2: Yeah. People lying to pollsters. That's, that's, yeah. a, that's a fun one. It, no, it it really is pretty fun. Actually. Um, you could, you know,
1: <laughs> no, because, ma- because people keep going like the polls, the polls look, it's like, and I, and I know like it's different now. But at the same time, it's like if that's if that's your baseline of the case for what's going to happen, how many yeah. times do you have to get burned before you, I don't know?
2: No, 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 no. Finish the thought. It's a good thought.
1: Now, how many times do you have to bur- have to get burned before you stop listening to that shit? <laughs> you know, and people keep saying, "Well, they have they have ways they have ways to account for people lying to pollsters." It's like, do they? Because it keeps happening. <laughs>
2: Well, you have to realize what kind of science it is. This is not a properly predictive science. This is social science, at best. It's a historical science, right? But like most historical sciences, like geology or evolutionary biology, or you know, even uh, sociology and anthropology, right? Like have a more stable basis for comparison and less like pragmatic short term interests involved. This is notoriously difficult to make any predictions about. Like even with some kind of indicatory data.
1: Well, and I'm not I'm not mad at the pollsters unless they literally are doing what Bill Burr says they do and just make it up. In which case, <laughs> I have a weird sort of respect for them. But I'm I'm mad at the people who keep basing basing shit on that. I don't know.
2: I I can understand that, but if if you think about it, like you got so you you go with your gut. You run the numbers and try to extrapolate from the tea leaves, right? There's a limited mm-hmm. amount of options here. Like, you can do some kind of, you know, sophisticated modeling that is skeptical of uh, <laughs> of of the numbers coming out. But I don't know what that is. I mean, I'd like to see those models.
1: Yeah, you throw some chicken bones down, see yeah. which way they point.
2: Yeah, fuck it. Like, give me give me a model that that you know, points to different elections. I mean, honestly, something like uh this is gonna sound silly, but you know, um uh Cleodynamics, right? There's uh somebody that uh, Peter Turchin, he's uh he's one of these like historical science guys and he's trying to extrapolate like key structural demographic factors in political instability. Right? Like maybe uh maybe you know you can construct some kind of rationalistic model based on empirical data to make some sort of you know some sort of explanatory and predictive kind of inductive model for how people are going to vote or something plug it into some psych psychology i don't know maybe there are better models available but if you're on twitter you got like nate silver and you got like a bunch of raging kind of people working either for free or literally on the payroll. It's uh it's hard to make sense of these things. So I have a little sympathy of of for people that look at the numbers. But the numbers don't <laughs> are the numbers <laughs> just ba- yeah, based on the empirical record, which if you're looking at the numbers you should care about.
1: So okay, so yeah, the 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 bottom has pa- has fallen out uh for like for labor's base or for the post war compromise that they've all built their careers off of. And this is, again, masterfully articulated by just running footage of this rally that labor holds where they bring out all of these extremely pasty, bald bureaucrats with a, with a presentation set to what can only remind you of how they used to introduce the Chicago Bulls in the 90s. <laughs> and Curtis kind of points out that they thought that they could just, buy sort of modern mtv style presentations of things they could uh somehow gin up some excitement but uh
2: yeah there's there's a sort of like intermediate period where you have philip Gould as the strategic advisor of the labor party um where these classical patrician attitudes motivated turn towards focus groups um but you still have john major as the head of the labor party And he's sort of an old style labor leader, according to, according to Curtis and Philip Gould, however, is the, uh, revolutionary figure here, right? His idea is about consumer governance. Individuality is a kind of consumer governance. I pay taxes and I want this. I think Curtis is pulling from Gould when he talks about the new aspirational classes, which is just code for yuppies, basically. And Gould wants to appeal to them, and so he wants to not do tax increases. According to Curtis, in the labor campaign in 1992, things seemed to be doing fine. All indicators at the time seemed to show that labor was doing fine in the 1992 election and that the anti-tax message that conservatives were pushing wasn't landing. But Gould's big... Gould's big coup here is that he claimed in focus groups, he claimed that focus groups were pointing in the other direction. Despite the fact that John Major wins in 1992, it ends up being a disaster for the Labor Party. Peter Mandelson and Gould's policies end up being rejected by John Smith. I I spoke earlier. I said that um, John Major was the uh, labor leader. He's not. He's the he was the prime minister, I guess. After John Major's victory in nineteen ninety two, which was uh, according to Curtis a disaster for the Labour Party, um, Mandelson and Gould's policies are rejected by John Smith, who is the Labour leader.
1: This is, I would say, the best edited of the four. Mm, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe just because they have much a lot more contemporary footage to draw on, and you're not like pulling from you know some reel of people <laughs> arriving at a train station. Right. But there's a really great edit where. Um there's like this kind of press conference meeting and a bunch of the heads of labor are at the table and like uh wh- like they basically announced that they're not going the way according to like Gould's recommendations. And but in the shadows there's like this quick shot of like Blair, like outside all of the light of the cameras and stuff, <laughs> like looking on with, his, with yeah. his hand on his mouth, watching. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Biding his time. Gould fucks off,
2: joins a Clinton campaign. The Democrats focus groups their policies to taxpayer, consumer brain, um, Robert Reich campaign advisor, I'm I'm sorry, um, Robert Reich, who is part of the Clinton cabinet from 93 to 97 dismisses the focus groups politics. And then you have a sense that after Newt Gingrich's contract for America, despite the fact that, you know, they're turning from new deal, great society style promises. To the focus group politics. The campaign team did not believe they were betraying the poor. This tax rhetoric was just sort of the price they had to pay. So the Democratic Party ends up being more responsive to Gould's recommendations than the Labor Party. And I just want to say I don't know much about ins and outs of Labor Party politics, but like you can point the so called neoliberal turn in Democratic Party policy to fucking jimmy carter this Mm. is um you know despite whatever what was going on in the room at the time the idea that clinton had like no bones in his body that were like this would just mean that he wouldn't have gotten to be the democratic nominee
1: yeah he pulls a few clips from a documentary about the uh campaign for clinton called the war room um and there's this moment where like george stephanopoulos is like yeah we're gonna give people some cheaper health care and some jobs and shit Good job, everybody. Good job, team. But this does seem to be a cyclical recurrence for the Democrats and for liberals in the United right. States. The exact same thing happened uh, with Obama. Right. Like they get in. They have some kind of mandate. The Democrats, despite having everything they need, fail to deliver.
2: Absolutely squander their mandate.
1: And then there's this right-wing turn immediately afterwards in the midterms.
2: Yeah, and although, although she doesn't really come up... Um, they do mention health care, the expansion of health care, famously, you know, Hillary Clinton's first lady policy, instead of just being like, "Say no to drugs or we should have mental health," or you know, you should eat vegetables." She wants to launch something like something like pizza place, yeah, yeah, pizza place, yeah, that's right, yeah, <laughs> where we can get some cheese pizza. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, she wants to launch something like universal healthcare, something that's to the left of Romney slash Obamacare. And that ends up not really working for the Clinton administration. And so that whole thing is bracketed out a bit that Hillary was trying to take on at that point, the health insurance companies in, in kind of a big way. And this really pissed off a lot of democratic donors not voters donors
1: yeah so basically uh clinton caves to austerity and yeah. it, bl- it blows up in his face anyway you get the midterm republicans and after that there's this turn towards even even more psychotically targeting this very narrow band of suburban swing voters and this is this is a particular this is a particular bit of insanity that we see from the democratic party from now until this until the present day and the depths of it get to a point he brings in i think uh dick morris who's like this ruthless, ruthless consultant who is conducting is doing these phone calls and conducting these polls with these specifically targeted demographics in order to figure out how they feel about things not only on these you know ticky tack issues like v chips and tvs to make sure the kids can't watch porn or whatever but even things like whether the united states should bomb bosnia
0: yeah. think about this
1: yeah right and th- there's another great shot too where you see like this family riding this like super side golf cart through the through the suburbs with like ominous music set to it. <laughs> and th- like this is how terrified Democrats are of this particular cla- and this and again you to to really unpack this you have to get into the way that real estate and the way that home ownership was designed politically in the United States to foster this kind of subjectivity which they get in a little bit in like previous episodes and how yeah it's basically so much of american politics is people trying to protect their property values
2: mm-hmm. yes something angles understood
1: that which ties into racism in it and everything else like that but yeah democrats are perpetually terrified because again they don't want to activate any actual any actual like working class discontent or anything in that broader like 40 percent of the electorate that just doesn't bother to vote and uh yeah so Politics becomes even more hollowed out and flattened as like Bill Clinton goes on these hunting excursions, even though he doesn't really hunt, or he does like repairs around the White House so he could be photographed doing that. Right, right. It's it's really mad. Like the thing about Bosnia is really the fact that it's like the most maddening. Yeah, that you're basically, you're, that's you're disturbing. Asking, you're asking these people who 100% could not point to Bosnia on a map, what how they feel about it and using that to inform decision making. uh on a global stage. Madness.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's disturbing, no matter how you cut it. Before this, you have a sort of, like, a heroic story, right? Clinton gets elected, enter the deficit, $300 billion. It's proposed that, you know, we shouldn't borrow to pay for the tax cuts, we have to cut military and welfare spending. But instead, um, in 1993, Clinton chooses to reject the tax cuts and expand healthcare and welfare. Suburban voters feel betrayed and want revenge, quote, quote. The 94 elections, the the 94 midterm elections, a hand the Democrats asked of them, that's where you get Newt Gingrich and the Contract of America. And then that's when you get Dick Morris and his, uh, quote, small ball politics, lifestyle marketing to politics for the first time. That's a direct quote from Adam Curtis. Uh, We're talking, you know, owners, not targets. In order to win re-election, you have to embrace tax consumer brain and fulfill personal desires and whims. So the small ball politics is based on these neuro personality profiles. And yeah. So this is marked by Adam Curtis as the death of FDR ideals, the death of the New Deal Great Society framework right here, not with Jimmy Carter's turn against Keynesianism. But in like 1994, where you get this policy regime that's influenced by you know eight people sipping wine and Kettering, or whatever the American version of that is—is is Kettering in the U.S.? I don't think so. Anyway, because they had the British guy who is basically the equivalent of Robert Reich, right? He didn't. He didn't
1: last in into the actual Blair administration. No, no. Like, he, he seems he he's he's seems sufficiently bla- bitter. He's
2: far too blackpilled for that. Um, yeah. Or perhaps I'm getting the causation reversed. Anyway, this is where Clinton implements workfare. And Robert Reich basically comments on this focus group politics by saying, you know, it suggests that democracy is nothing more and should be nothing more than, you know, satisfying yourself. Then we cut back to labor, 1994. Tony Blair is now the leader. Peter Mandelson's click won uh, the strategic debate. Philip Gould runs the focus groups every night with suburban voters. And then this is uh, Derek Draper. Who's that campaign burnout that we're talking about from labor. And we're talking about groups of eight people drinking wine and eating Cheerios the labor 97 campaign borrows from the 96 Clinton campaign. They make a big deal. Adam Curtis makes a big deal about dropping clause four from the labor manifesto or rewriting clause four. Clause 4 was the major guarantor in the British Socialist program for public control of industry. After this, Rupert Murdoch's The Sun backs Blair.
1: Yeah, tits out for Blair. So Blair just basically completely apes Clintonism. And, there, you know, and again, this is an ongoing thing where there's a kind of uh, parallel track between, in the Anglo world, politicians. You sort of saw this a little bit with like Bernie Sanders and the... Uh, jeremy Corbyn, very mm-hmm. briefly but yeah what a creep blair is i'm just looking at some <laughs> of this footage of him or whatever like just the faces he makes like he 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 was on the he was on those flights pretty sure <laughs> um, he's a truly unlikable human being um but i would say for curtis he never gets into carter but it is it's very much the end point precisely because it's Politics have been so hollowed out of content that they really don't even just stand for anything they're just chasing whatever they perceive to be the desires of you know suburban swing voters and just trying as best they can to be prostitute any of their just throw any of their beliefs under the bus just get rid of everything and try and just give them exactly what they think they want and uh the black pilled uh ex ex uh ex assistant to Mendelssohn guy kind of points out how insanely incoherent that is because, you know, in order...
2: Derek Draper.
1: Derek Draper, yeah. In order to have a functional society, there needs to be somebody, or it needs to be some institution ensuring that things are functional and not just... Uh, for the long term in other words uh, ensuring good conditions for long-term capital accumulation and not just cashing in on things immediately either via privatization or you know letting infrastructure go to pot which again it's funny to hear clinton talking about how important we have to rebuild our infrastructure yeah here we are uh 30 years later they're still saying the same shit
2: yeah yeah but jake jake i won't have you smear the good name of sex workers by comparing them to politicians um, <laughs> i think that's disrespectful
1: yeah, the, you. There needs to be somebody basically saying, "This is what I stand for." Do you trust me? And you like this? You know, there needs to be somebody articulating for people. Yeah, because not everyone's gonna have time to develop like a coherent ideology or platform for the management of society, and just chasing like the random. ADHD fucking notions that people have or haven't even thought about is an insane way to actually govern society. It's useful as if you're just trying to figure out, you know, ground bait for people to throw at them to convince them to join you it will be, meanwhile you doggedly pursue your own your own agenda which uh conservatives are generally much better at. Right, right. Yeah, so I think what, what disturbs Curtis here and what he sees as different is precisely that complete hollowing out of anything and any effort to try and do politics in any kind of civically minded way.
2: Yeah, I, I guess, you know, if you just know a little more American history, you know that Henry Kissinger extended the Vietnam War about twice as long and had it have twice as many casualties, essentially as election advice to Nixon. So you know that this, like, bird flew the coop a long time ago. Right. That this is just a formalized version of something that already exists. Um, so I guess that's the kind of perspective difference going on here. Because his ultimate problem here is that this couldn't have existed to the degree that it did before focus group democracy. But the fact is that, I mean, the American system, since the beginning was gamed was gamed to artificially inflate like slaveholder votes mm-hmm. and consistently over time whenever there's a move towards expanding the franchise there's you know shrinking role for the actual elected institutions I'm sorry there's a shrinking role for you know the legislature and this is like a long-term tendency in in american democracy That is, like, not new. And even this particular part of it is only just being formalized. This, you know, what did Nixon stand for? You know, like, Nixon was pretty much a center-of-the-road kind of guy in American society. Like, he signed the EPA into existence. He brokered a deal with Mao... You know, like, he was worried about the Jews and the homosexuals, and, you know, the Jews are pushing weed again, and I don't know, like, like there's a sort of idealism here being projected on America before Reagan that is just mind-blowing to me.
1: But there is something, there is a takeaway here that is positive, and I think that what Marxists can actually pull from this is the real task politically— a real task politically is to give people an actual choice, not to get elected into office. Mm. Right. Because if you go around, it's sort of like uh, Robert Reich says, if you, if you get elected without any mandate, you can't really do anything. And the whole thing's pointless, unless you're just there to flate your ego and hold power and be able to bomb some people, you know, Mm -hmm. like the task of Marxists is to basically fight, to get a foothold in the political arena such that we can offer people a choice of a different kind of society. Now, voters may reject that. Just the the task of putting that choice on the table is a positive good in and of itself and having people presented with that alternative so that they understand that it exists and is articulated by somebody. Um, And really, our back is against the wall because capitalism is so advanced and things are so hollowed out that there's really nowhere to go. You could tack the center like the Blairites, and then you just end up uh, invading Iraq, <laughs> right? You can you can do you can pull an Obama and really accomplish pretty much literally nothing.
2: <laughs> he, hey, expanded Medicaid, okay?
1: Like, okay, uh, expanded Medicaid. Yeah,
2: that, I mean, like out of all out of all the things that a Democrat could do with a supermajority, especially one with a mandate, a, a relatively strong mandate for a contemporary political candidate you know he ends up rejecting his like ends up rejecting the public option because it's not a consensus idea in congress an adversarial political institution
1: but but the takeaway here the positive takeaway and hopefully maybe this if liberals watch this they can get properly blackpilled the way they're supposed to (laughs) is that it's okay to lose elections it's okay to run on principle and fail, so long as you're getting that message out to a mass audience. It's so long as you present people with a legitimate, genuine choice, even if they reject it. The act of doing that creates the conditions for them potentially to make the right choice in the future because they understood what you know that they made that choice and they've been un- presented with that argument. Just trying to basically turn this system into something that, yeah, uh, by replicating consumerized capitalism in the political sphere you somehow make it more democratic is completely fucking insane and it's cope and it's hard cup li- like liberals and some leftists too really need to stop coping on electoralism 100 percent like it's got to stop you got to stop doing it you have like they have to actually stand for and that's that was as compromised as like bernie sanders was there was some kind of vague message of solidarity there was some kind of principles being presented before a mass audience in a way, right, because you can't just be Howie Hawkins and you know tweeting out to three thousand people, you know like this you know perfect green New Deal or whatever you have to get a message to a broad amount of people, but it has to be something that is that has a solid foundation that is a genuine choice and that does actually offer people a way out of this uh you know late capitalist hellscape or whatever. Or at least, at least something in that direction.
2: Unfortunately, it's precisely the framework that Adam Curtis is bringing to the table that ultimately holds Bernie Sanders back. That what Bernie Sanders really wants is a restoration of New Deal ideals and that, you know, we can all come together as a society and build this. No, the Bernie Sanders that I like is the one that talks about the billionaire class, you know, and that is like making this a fight. And when Bernie Sanders had the attention of the world, he did not do that. Like, as t- in terms of takeaways, like, yeah, we want to declare war on focus group democracy. You know, ultimately, Bernays was anti-democratic and consumerism gives the illusion of control in a degree because you stop thinking about having a greater stake in society. You realize kind of how big it is and how small you are. And how all you can do is sort of articulate yourself in a limited number of ways at the character select screen. And I mean, as you get older, you start to realize that, like, I mean, especially decade in, decade out in capitalism, like, you're going to have to accept this to some degree. Like, trying to be, you know, a negating, unrolling ball that is never, like, implicated in any of the trends in your life is going to make you a pretty, you know a singular type of person, a a pretty like a rather predictable type of person anyway, you know, like there's also postmodern expressive categories for this type of person. Like this, like 20 years ago, you know, Radiohead was trying to be the pop music that was avoiding every genre convention in 20 years when you your go to to make fun of someone in this generation is to dunk on them for listening to Radiohead, right?
1: Well, what has to be exploded is that any of that stuff matters. <laughs> like it, it, that that has no political content. Um, even if those, even though, yeah, that the choices the character selects for, yeah, okay, I guess that matters to you personally, but that doesn't provide any kind of meaningful avenue to negate capitalist society or whatever.
2: Right, and and so like consumerism, you know, giving the illusion of control and the way that politics linked into the same circuit. Yeah. Like there is something about this that we need to avoid. And in, in a sense, like if you're looking to avoid trends or something, politics would be the best place to do that, to like avoid using this or that kind of current as an identity formation, you know, and then articulating yourself in that mode, like, like, yeah, you might want to avoid doing that. Only pain will you find. Something that's kind of confused in the documentary or confused in the video essay is that, you know, labor was hoodwinked here. Focus groups gave contradictory information on railways, which Thatcher privatized, and it turned out to be, like, you know, massively, like, unpopular, privatize the railways. Um, but that ultimately, in like... I don't know. It's, it's, it sort of points to that, like, this all was bad for labor and that, you know, this didn't work out. And, you know, it's true. It didn't work out. It's not like, you know, I don't know. Like, what is success in politics? Is Tony Blair a success? Like, he left a hangover in the party that was pushed back on by a current that also couldn't win. What Derek Draper is essentially saying, that you need someone who has a vision and ask them, and, and ask the public what they want. You know, again, Corbyn, perhaps limited by Spirit of 45, British Socialism. He did do that. Like, again, limited by this framework. It's kind of a double-edged sword.
1: I mean, yeah, but what Corbyn did was better.
2: What Corbyn did was better than just doing focus group stuff. But the problem is, both he and Sanders, once you get to a certain stage these people stop trusting their instincts to be adversarial, which is what got them there in the first place. Right. And yeah, there's structures involved and you know, there's a certain rationality to these structures, but the concept of betrayal is very important to me at some point, even though you're following the structural imperatives, why don't you continue the fight when you have a foothold? There's even a sense in which it's good for you to do so. Like a certain game theory logic there. Like if you really science it out, it's, it's stupid to dull your appeal there. Like it does make sense if all you're doing is focusing on, you know, eight people eating Cheerios and drinking wine. The idea of big ideas has to transcend the post-war compromise. As long as we're locked in there, we are, as Mike Davis put it, prisoners of the American dream. And it is something more long-term than that. But that's our current nationalistic framework. And it is so, you know, throughout, you know, most of the, like, you know, democratic world. Like, at least, you know, the so-called first world, you know, where there is a socialist-themed post-war compromise or, you know, a, you know, liberal-themed post-war compromise or what have you. Like a welfare state compromise at the end of the war, and we keep trying to be conservatives for those values in an economic situation that's totally gone. In order to truly stand for something, we have to abandon that frame of reference because that's not the playing field we're on anymore.
1: Well, and that's that's the contradiction of Sanders and Corbyn, is that they they were able to do what they did because they were you know they were the last action heroes they were the last <laughs> samurais they were they were the uh lone japanese soldier on the island still fighting the war like 40 years after it was over yeah they, they were the dead end they were the dead enders from that period yeah and they were the holdouts and yeah. but being that allowed them to articulate this greater sense of you know social solidarity and uh this greater sense of Social justice that had largely been lost in politics to this form of politics that, you know, you know basically came to dominate and that uh, Curtis has spent a good part of his career savaging. And so I think that part of the reason that so many younger people were attracted to Corbin and Sanders was precisely because they saw that not necessarily that they all wanted to go back to the 50s and 60s right. or whatever. The trick will be you know how do you cuz as we t- as we talked about you know with the banner book so many of these debates within nations <clears throat> are different people posing different forms of nationalism mm-hmm. uh in order in order to articulate you know what kind of society they want to build within the context of this nation you know how to basically articulate a vision of the future that that doesn't completely make us sound like space aliens <laughs> that seems feasible
2: yeah yeah, no. This is, yeah, this is a problem when you kind of disarticulate what younger people saw in Sanders and Corbyn and what older people saw in Sanders and Corbyn. Yes, there were some younger people that are just like, I just want health care. But, you know, there are younger people that saw much more radical horizons in these candidates. When you really disambiguated what these candidates were about, it broke their hearts because they really were old people, as it turns out. They're not from the future.
1: But, I mean, and that does kind of get back to the – I mean, one of the positive things you can take from the classical SPD model is the idea of remaining in opposition Mm -hmm. and understanding that engaging in electoral politics is a means to an end. It's mostly to articulate before the masses some kind of alternative and to uh, create a – Create the basis for a possible class politics, right? Not just as a way to cr- invent a set of stable categories that allows you to, you know, carve out a position for yourself uh, in, you know, some political party or right, whatever. Right. Because you know, you, you've developed like a political machine that is reliable and allows you to sit, you know, and collect a check from the government forever. Which
2: is the danger of a permanent opposition.
1: Well, yeah, it's the, it's yeah, it's the danger of permanent opposition, but it's in that yeah it becomes it. There gets to be a sort of stalemate and it becomes integrated into the system. But a genuine opposition, something where there wasn't some kind of uh, deal made like that, mm. is the other danger of that is that situation is extremely explosive. So, but, it, but doing politics in that way is absolutely necessary because anywhere else you go, you're basically just going to govern like a conservative, mm-hmm. if not end up actually implementing politics that are more conservative. Because you, get to, you can get away with it because of who you are. Right.
2: Um, what Glenn Ford calls the more effective of two evils.
1: Right. Um, so, I mean, politically at least, I think that's kind of the main takeaway that they want you to have from this, which is correct. Whatever, whatever historical or whatever issues, failings of economic analysis that it presents, I think the distilled point of it is essentially correct. I mean,
2: that's, that's a far more coherent version of it. If you're getting Kautsky out of this, then you're, you're really extrapolating. However, you know, I agree that like, we can't operate with the same short-termism bourgeois political operatives do. Like, if that's what happens, we lose structurally. We're done. Like we can we can't play ball in the same way. Like we have to remain adversarial and offer some kind of choice. And it's, it's hard to envision. It's hard to envision what it would mean to engage with elections in an adversarial way that offers a real choice. Because elections are exactly the kind of machinery, especially within the Democratic Party, that eats choice alive.
1: Right. Well, It's difficult to imagine how to do that, particularly in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because of the literal structural little structure of the U.S. government precludes any kind of third party uh, forming unless it supplants a party that already exists, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. usually happens in a context of a broader constitutional crisis, if not a civil war. So, Which, if you follow United States,
2: structural demographic trends, is exactly where we're heading.
1: And in the United States, in a way, we're not even at a point where – there's like enough of a unity or even in i mean again bernie sanders because of these this weird historical shortcut that he offered briefly i think offered a moment to do something like that at a mass scale Mm. but how to actually create an organization that would be capable of getting a foothold enough to do something like that is still something that i don't think anybody really has the answer to no i think you can make a lot of cases one way or another um but i think that one thing that it, yeah, it has to be clear is that it's not just it's not just being oppositional, but it's also getting getting enough reach to enough of a mass of people in order to even be a factor. Yes.
2: You need a hearing. You need, you know, right. Politics is done in the millions. That's that's still true. Uh, there's there's the final note. The final sounding note here is. I'll say this. Just noting the point that ideology doesn't make something false. The fact that something is ideological doesn't make it truth value false. I think Curtis's view of the Freudian view of human nature is in some ways better than a lot of the critical theory reads of Freud. Essentially that the Freudian view of human nature is a pro-business ideology. That selfish, instinct-driven individuals have become slaves to their own desires. And that, in the words of Robert Reich, Irrational bundles of emotion versus rational deliberation about what is best is this picture, and that business can intrinsically respond better to the irrational side of human nature than politics. I sometimes refer to the butthole twitch for the, you know, general Freudian picture. There is an element of that that I agree with, that I think that we need to reckon with, that critical theory tries to reckon with and then refuses the means by which it could ever formalize a response like what's by ignoring the material base here in a sense and saying and seeding the ground that business can intrinsically respond better to the irrational side of human nature than politics. What we're not talking about is economic association within we're not talking about is association within the economic sphere that's responding to the mode of production. Something like a working class organization in response to lived experience in capitalism. Um, I'm not saying that something like this is easy to build. As you know, the proletariat has no organizations of its own at this time, but it's that, that, that is, that is the, that is the challenge. The challenge here is to unite the proletariat in a pre-political way and that political expression can become means to an end, not an end in itself. And so if, if we are, because I think, you know, Jake, you and I, we don't reject entirely this idea of human reason being a cork floating on unconscious desires. You know, I I think it's hard to live in the internet era and maintain the idea of the, the rational choice agent doing politics that Curtis seems to idealize, Robert Reich seems to sort of idealize as being the foundation of democracy. And that there does need to be a coherent response to this Bernays sort of way of looking at things. That, again, you know, I'm, I'm being slightly vulgar by saying that Curtis has a sort of better read on what, <laughs> you know, Freud's diagnosis actually means for society. Than critical theory. I'm being a little trollish, I'll admit this. But that, you know, we do have to find a way to cope with the butthole twitching and reactivate whatever whatever rational argumentation actually means in political discourse, we need to be able to engage with it in some way. I don't know what that has to do with winning, exactly. But it's about our honesty as actors, as people that want to put forward an alternative. We can't just be twitching around and, you know, being conditioned by Twitter or whatever to be the perfect soul boomers. You know, we can't just be leftist Donald Trump. We need something genuinely different.
1: Obviously, politics has never been, I don't know. Except maybe in Athens, like a bunch of men in togas, like even then stroking their beards and pondering the pondering the nature of civic life,
2: even then they're like porking each other on the side, so I don't buy it, you know yeah,
1: and they were, they also had like you know a bunch of slaves that gave them the free time to do that, yeah you know when you have when you have a society where there's a division between man, mental and manual labor, you know you're not going to have people one hundred percent. Engaging in politics in this clearly rationalistic way. Um, However, there probably was a more conscious, rational form of civic life. There almost certainly was in previous periods of American history, a more consciously cultivated, um, rational civic life than there is uh, in this contemporary era of, uh, you know, the era of narcotics almost, where (laughs) everything – you're basically – subject to this constant IV drip of, like, rushes and stimulation coming whether it's from media or mind-altering substances right, or whatever, right. and, you know, any kind of... Well, first of all, society's in many ways, like, more complicated than it's ever been, which makes it very hard to think about it uh, in a way where earlier stages... Speaking just specifically about America... I guess you could extrapolate this elsewhere. I think you can extrapolate so you like a rel- this. A, a, like, a relatively stable form of society based around aggregarian life and land ownership, you know, like in some ways that's, especially given how so much of that was human history, like that's very easy to, to think about that in a way, whereas, you know, now we're in the midst of all these like strange technological shifts and all this new information about, you know, what the nature of the universe is and where human beings come from. All that stuff. That's a lot to, um, that's a lot to metabolize and that's a lot to take in. That's a lot to, you know, try and conceptualize what politics even is and and so it's going to require yeah a a great deal probably even more so of conscious rationalistic thought in order to develop a basis to think about what is best for society um the way that perhaps and i'm just speculating here Mm. you know i haven't really thought this through the way the the way that you can break through this maybe i tough to say part of what's so disturbing about donald trump is that donald trump is putting on a show. You know, it's the Donald Trump show. And people watch it cuz they love it, they love to tune in. That's what everyone has in common. Whether they're liberals who love him as the heel in re- as in wrestling, mm-hmm. whether it's conservatives who, you know, love the, you know, let's trigger the libs hour or the stand-up comedy sets that he does on the road or whatever. It's the Donald Trump show. Yeah. If you
2: think he's going to rescue all the children from the Elite pedophile circles that control everything.
1: Yeah, that's people doing uh, fan theories online, right? basically. Uh, but they think it's real. What perhaps somebody could do from the left is tell people a convincing story. <laughs> you know, situate their problems within the context of a broader narrative. And a narrative that they could be a part of that might lead to a broader resolution of the social problems that we exist within. Uh, Problem is, a lot of those problems seem to be so totalizing that it's hard to imagine where to begin.
0: Well,
2: you do have a lot of people that attempt this, right? And these are people that believe in some way, but it's not, these aren't virtuous examples. These are people that don't have the level of, like, self-honesty. They essentially have, like, the, the internalized, like, Twitter brain, where they their personalities have become an expression of what other people like out of them. Right. Like, and so they are trying to put together some picture that is. Coherent enough to make more sense to, you know, human mind that isn't adapted for complex society in the way that it was adapted to foraging society or agrarian society or whatever. Right. But like, that it is also craven and corrupt in a way because people aren't really honest with themselves about what they're doing. There's a short-termism there too. And by dunking on Freudianism as an exist, or by dunking on, you know, this Freudian view of human nature as pro-business ideology, I don't even really mean to say that I think Freud is 100% wrong or that, that there's nothing real to the Freudian, you know... Uh, um, to the general psychoanalytic viewpoint or something. Like I do think there is something to that and I never believe it more than when I'm looking at somebody who's frantically trying to pull together a narrative that even one that's, you know, barely coherent, barely hangs together in order to understand complex society in a morally simple way or, you know, in, in a way that's just, We've, you know, we've betrayed our history and we need to bring it back. You know, this nostalgic mode of leftism um, or even something as far-reaching as anarcho-primitivism. You know, there's a very obvious romantic move being done there. And very frequently the actors themselves are true believers in a certain type of way. They might agree with something else today and tomorrow because... You know, they read something in between those days, right? But overall, they believe. uh, And it doesn't quite matter what they believe, but they believe in such a way to give themselves a place in society now in a way that forms their identity. And this is... It's kind of hard to avoid in a way because it's so existentially important that we get out of this situation. But subsuming your individual personality to the existential importance of getting out of the situation strangely feeds into the situation. Like it's, um, and you know, to borrow language from another Adam Curtis documentary, it's a, it's a trap. It's a trap that isn't solved by painting a coherent picture. And I think that's ultimately the role of reason is for the people offering an alternative To check ourselves, check our own motivations. And look, you know, the reason itself, like, will never, it it will never, like, be able to just confirm, like, 100% something that you want to believe or whatever. But it can, if you listen to it, talk you out of something that you want to believe. Which sounds bad. But you have to be open to that in order to be an honest political actor. A phrase that is basically like you know <laughs> civil war or, or or whatever. Like what's the word? Um, my brain's going. What's what's the word? It's it's a contradiction within itself. It's um I don't know. Like to be an honest political actor, you need the capacity to check your own wishful thinking. And that's like where the Freudian view isn't just ideology; there is something there that we need to take seriously.
1: Well, I think there's no there's no shortage of ideas of like what things have to happen. Uh, it's just a question of how do you make it real, mm-hmm. you know. And some on some level that you know that will require experimentation. On some level, it requires a certain sense of patience mm-hmm. because. Yeah, I mean, and in terms of the storytelling thing, like another shitty example you could point to would be like Andrew Yang, right? <laughs> but what was kind of useful about Yang is that in order to counter this, Im- this narrative about immigration, he had like mm-hmm. a slogan where it's like, it's not immigration, it's automation. Right. Which is closer to the truth and communicates something that is uh, very essential to the nature of the system and the nature of the problem, which is you know rising productivity that is met with a reduction of work hours right
2: yeah uh that's one of the one of the only places i could think of where andrew yang and uh aaron bananev you know uh, probably meet on the venn diagram
1: um but yeah because i'm trying to think about like how you would how would you you would communicate these broader ideas to like a broader audience and again i don't know like what you mean by like subsuming your identity to these things, because I don't feel like identity really plays into it.
2: You don't think people identify as like their pet political ideology in a counterproductive way, subsume their individuality in an unproductive way to a sort of like imagined collective project, convince themselves that fantasies and falsehoods and, you know, Disneyland wishes are real. And kind of conduct their lives as a crusade against the unbelievers.
1: It depends. Like, I I feel like even somebody like Jason Unruh, right? Like understands maybe even more self-aware than they're often given credit for. I know that sounds weird, but like, I think, I think people understand like how hopeless the situation is. I think a lot of that comes out of um, the association, of the stuff with youth culture, because when you're younger, you you pick up different like signifiers in order to uh, basically develop your own like I, th- yeah. that's really where a lot of this stuff is, is like really foundational. Right.
2: But in in saying that, he knows what's going on. So you're basically at a the horns of a dilemma, right? Like either this person is a true believer, and there's something stupid about them in a way that is morally it's morally better. Yes, they might be deluding themselves in a functional way that allows them to play this role, but it's morally better than someone who knows that this is full of shit and pretty hopeless and they're just cashing in. And in a way you can respect the second person's intellect more, but it makes them even more morally bankrupt than the true believer who is also, they can still be an instrumentalizing prick, don't get me wrong. But you see what I'm saying there. If Jason Unruh knows that he's just securing his own social position by yammering about, you know, america settlers, like, then he's even more of a piece of shit than he would be if he, you know, believes his own bullshit, which is still a piece of shit.
1: Right. Well, I mean, I guess I was talking about in terms of, like, narrative, like, yeah. again, I was talking more about, like, mass politics than I was about, you know, say, I don't know, like, the like interleft like internet debates. Well, no, no, no. but saying? like
2: but that's he's a good like kind of micro example. If if you're campaigning on something well, you don't believe in, like that's ultra cynical. Like you have to at least believe it and you need to be the type of person that is inquisitive enough to you know, check if things that you believe are bullshit, so you're not just leading a bunch of people off a cliff. You see what I'm saying? That's where it ties into the narrative stuff. Like, think about all the people that believed in Bernie. That are completely blackpilled now. Like. That's, in part, a flaw in his vision. Like, in part, a flaw in what he believed. And the, f- the fact that he got there. Is, you know, like pretty impressive and that he was able to command the national stage. He had a shot at being the party leader. And you could could say the same thing about Corbyn. Corbyn was even more successful in a way in capturing this. But their fealty to an old nationalistic kind of narrative hampered their ability to actually prosecute this. Actually make this a reality and make this something that people should have believed in. They unfortunately prove their skeptics right. How do you believe in something that doesn't do that? That's the hard question. So in a way, I'm apologizing for agreeing with some of Adam Curtis's read of, you know, actually existing Freudianism, because there there is a psychoanalytic problem here that one needs to overcome in order to solve the problem that Curtis is raising. Because it is a problem, and some of the, yeah, some of the takeaways here aren't, like, aren't total bullshit. Like, people do have to stand for something. But it matters what it is.
1: I mean, ultimately, like, the real problem is, you know, like, yeah, financialization has to some extent, like, mystified class politics. Or rather, you could say, like, the de de deindustrialization in that whole era has done that to the point that... Uh, You know, it's hard to even know, like, what what lines of solidarity you would even draw, you know, like it's 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 the peasantization of, you know, these these different uh, societies.
2: Yeah. And regardless of whether or not class politics will be done in identity ways in the future, we have to adapt. We can't stay stuck. Like. There is a sense in which where there was like an active class compromise with workers' identity, and when that, like, class compromise fell apart, we're talking about both of them, roughly periods of 50 years. It's about as long that it worked and, like, about as long as as it hasn't worked. You know, let's say, like, 1920 to 1970 versus, you know, 1970 to now, right? Like... We're dealing with like roughly 50 year periods, like class identity hasn't worked for as long as it worked at one point in a national narrative. Like, I don't know what the communist movement in the future is going to be like, but we have to sort of prepare for every eventuality In in a way that is like pretty overwhelming. And I don't know the challenges of being a political operative in complex society in a way that's remotely honest, in a way that's suggested by standing for something and being able to be a subject of rational deliberation in the way that Robert Reich describes, despite the fact that Jake, you and I, to some degree believe in the, you know, there's a butthole to in human nature, it's not all Athens or, you know, idealized picture of Athens. Like that's, you know, it's a harder problem than it sounds, and it's fucking very difficult to articulate.
1: <laughs> Again, I think the very basis is, the, like, the first step is really to basically, to get some kind of vision of an alternative to a mass of people. Because I don't think that idea is going to emerge spontaneously. I mean, the ground for it will be more or less fertile depending on conditions, but I think you, I think you have to plant that seed. Uh, and to do that, uh, requires, uh, some sort of collective effort. Uh, it requires, uh, it requires a party, if you want to call it that. It requires basically people giving up their shibboleths and, uh, agreeing on that, on some kind of, uh, targeted collective action and and utilization of resources, On some specific thing. There needs to be some kind of agreed upon strategy. Of the broader left. Uh, And. uh, It's going to require compromise. But you know it seems like the whole thing. Right now is so gamified. And this is another thing that I like about Curtis. Is where he talks about how everybody. You know everybody is so interested. In having their little moment. Or representing Mm -hmm. their little fucking thing. Mm -hmm. That again they can't. They can't. uh, Go along with some kind of yeah broader specific thing because they don't feel like uh they don't feel like it's about them or whatever like you see this in some of the craziness of any any meetings of anything where ev- <laughs> you know Any there people are essentially whether they know it or not engaging in sabotage by you know turning everything i've done this before myself yeah. this is like self-criticism 100 for, no, for sure um everyone's acting like you know it's fucking uh it's fucking february in uh st petersburg in 1917 you know and every, every everything has like these inflated stakes beyond even what what the capacities of the or scale of the organization is or what the particular questions are right now you know um, yeah and that i think i think maybe at least for the left what presages that is is people again stop coping and come to grips with what the actual stakes are in two senses, both one in terms of like what the size and the actual uh, capacities are of the existing organizations at the left, uh, but also like the scale of the problems that we're facing. And when you look at those two things, um, you'll feel much better about uh, not burning yourself out, mm-hmm. but also having like a small level of involvement in things yeah. that don't one hundred percent conform. To uh, your your particular brand of uh, leftism or or Marxism Mm -hmm. or identitarianism that you've cultivated for personal branding purposes on social media.
2: Yes. And um, I guess to peel back to what you're saying about vision and strategy, what the role of a party is, there's a sense in which the moment that we really need is the Marxian notion of party, something even a little more utopian than even what Marx is going for. What we just need is like to be able to visualize the future because the whole thing about the utopian socialists and the scientific socialists is that, Oh, okay. You know, you kind of have a hazy view of, of the future you want. Well, let's be all critical and scientific about how to get there. We're not even at the first stage. Where like people can think about what kind of place they want to live in, so in a way like that's the goal before strategy, and maybe that's like not a Marxist thing to say, but there's some, I think there's I think there's something to that because you can't actually talk strategy unless you have some shared idea of what your end is. You can't re- like if you're going to talk means without ends, it's going to be no surprise that the means become the ends.
1: And that's that's sort of the problem, is it's hard to... It's it's kind of clear what we need, but it's hard to conceptualize how that actually happens in the United States right now, which unfortunately uh, leads us kind of back to tail uh which is not a happy place to be, but it's kind of where we end up defaulting to. At least until, you know, there is such a point where, yeah, there is enough of a... There are enough people who have enough of a sense of what needs to happen that you can collectivize that energy and harness it towards something in particular. And yesterday yesterday it was Sanders, uh the day after that it was, you know, the riots. Uh who knows what's next.
2: Well, jeez, if only there was some kind of s- small sample size scientific apparatus to, you know, do properly good tailism, maybe we could get a, you know, a, f- a few representative people in a room and feed them some Cheerios and some wine and ask them to enact uh, consumer products or <laughs> hmm. I think we, yeah, we want, we definitely are at a bit of an impasse, but it's an impasse informed by the failures of the present, which might have echoes of the past, but at least they just happened,
1: you know, <laughs> Well, and the good thing is, is that you know, uh, reality isn't a model. So, you know, there could be some weird uh, exogenous factor that comes and completely shakes things up again. Yeah, you know, I didn't see. I didn't see Bernie Sanders becoming like a national political figure coming. No,
2: I, I, I certainly didn't. I, I certainly didn't see that coming.
0: That's it for this week. One of the more frustrating things about editing this show is. Listening to myself try and articulate a point and either not doing it or just forgetting to do it. And the one thing I wanted to say was that I think what this last installment of the series implies is that basically our back is against the wall. And it's created a situation where, as I see it, the obstacle can become the path in that... The decline of capitalism has pretty much eviscerated progressive political possibilities, at least in the United States, but that could lay the conditions for a genuinely oppositional politics. In other words, a politics that, rather than seeking to implement piecemeal reforms, actually stands in opposition to the system as a totality and attempts to educate the working class in the radical nature of the task at hand in terms of what it will take to get out of this situation and have a more egalitarian, just society. So anyway, um, if you want to support the show, check out our Patreon, like and subscribe, all this stuff. If you want to get a hold of us, you can uh, contact us on social media or send us an email at swampsidechats at gmail.com. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.